tell you what do you find? Delta Echo Bravo and Comedy 49.
below. Hi everyone. Um, thank you so much for joining us for Base in the City today. Sounds like London. We've got a brilliant programme coming up all the way through till nine, so please do stick around. We've got Chips Richard first, followed by Jazzy B, then Eddie Ocha, who's a Metalheads photographer, then we've got Fabio, Marla, Congo Natty, and then Marla, so, and Portia Clark. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming. I'm now going to put heart pass over to our wonderful host, Lloyd Bradley, who's going to introduce um, the event and also introduce Chips. So thank you very much, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. That's better. Right. Thanks for coming. This is really great. It's um, I wrote a book called Sounds Like London, which was all about a hundred years of black music in London. And so I'm really, really pleased to have been asked to host this event that celebrates that same black music in London. So come a big round of applause for Second Home and Bonnie and Magdalena for putting this on. So we're going to tell a story as it goes on with different people that have got involved in black music in a different, well, not really a different way. And the key to it all, and something we keep coming back to, is sound systems. Essentially, this is a sound system history, and we've got appropriate scenery for that. And... Uh, yeah, let's thank Reggae Roast for that. I think they're around. Round of applause for Reggae Roast, please. Stand up, take a bow, guys. So, let's start off. Now, we've got a guy here. We're really lucky to have this man uh, to talk about himself and his life in reggae. Chips Richards is, uh, was the marketing manager of Trojan Records, one of the, probably the first record label to put Jamaican music in the public eye. They turned it, they managed to turn it into pop music. They got it into the charts, late 60s, early 70s was, we called it the Trojan Explosion because they were all over the charts. Um, Chips was marketing director. He's also got a sound system history. He's been responsible for taking reggae around the world, not just uh, in the UK. So um, let's bring him up now and talk about, and allow him to talk about himself. Ladies and gentlemen, Chips Richards. Good evening, everyone. I am Chips. I used let me get a seat. When you're old, you need to sit down more. <laughs> yeah, I used to be the marketing manager for children during the 70s. I managed to put about 14 records in the British charts. One of the artists is sitting right behind you, uh, Lux Geechee from the Simmerons Group. Okay, I grew up in Western Kingston, in Denham Town, Kingston 14. That is the art of the sound system industry. First, uh, just on the road from me, two streets away was Jukwe, the children's sound system. And to my right was Chocomolan, the dance hall where Everybody come on and do the dancing performances and try to out dance each other. So I'm familiar with the sound system uh, ventures from early years. When I arrived in England, I used to play a sound system in Shepherd's Bush called Count Steve. 
And uh, we used to have uh, so many sound systems then people paved the way for reggae music. The sound systems has been the voice and the culture of Jamaica during those difficult years of with racism and we didn't have opportunities for clubs or any open space for dances. It was very restricted, very, very difficult. Up, in, up until <coughs> up until I merged into Trojan, I was busy lifting up sound system boxes in the middle of the night, uh, dri driving a Ford Transit van, taking around uh, big boxes and all the stuff that goes with keeping blues dances. What a blues dance was, we clear out rooms, clear out basements, and put in all these big boxes. People pay two shillings and sixpence to come in. They're selling curry goat and patties and Jamaican food. We would dance uh, until daylight, and we look somewhere else for next week. But it is what kept us uh, in tune with our culture back home because there was no provisions here for us due to racism. And not only that, it was institutional. And furthermore, the older people who own homes in those days were older people who were around during the war. So it was difficult for us to expect them to integrate into something new, like people who used to open ear dance coming here with big sound systems making noise, vibrating the buildings. Uh, it was a lot for to expect in those days. I merged into uh, producing records by Owen Gray, Denzel Dennis, and a group called The Classics. I began to produce records from 1971. Uh, by 1972, Island Records separate from Trojan Records. So I came in as a marketing man, became the marketing manager, and uh, had very, very difficult times. I was bombarded by racism in the BBC. It was impossible to get in. You go to the reception, they said you cannot get in unless you have an appointment with the producer. And now to get an appointment with the producer, you have to know a producer. So it is a way to keep us out by put a precondition to say, you cannot go in unless a producer invites you. How are you going to meet the producer unless you go in? So after meandering backward and forward, weeks after weeks, I decided to take another position. I decided to build a poster placard. I was prepared to campaign outside the BBC. And I, I took my poster from my car, opened it up, and showed the security to say, if I don't get in by next week, my friends and I will be standing outside here with some of these posters. He said, he clapped his hand, he said, well done, brilliant idea. But after you do that, where are you going to get a producer who will accept you? Because you'll be creating enemies before you even start. So he said, okay, put away the poster. I'll give you one chance. So I got in, went up the lift, and I saw a lady with a red a rose on her shirt. I went to introduce myself. I was a very handsome guy at that time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Big Afro here, yeah. high heel shoes. <laughs> so I met the lady, her name was Doreen Davis. She was one of the chief executives. So I told her that, look, I had to wizard to 
unkind ways just to get in there. She said, no, that's okay. I'll leave these doors open for you. So she began to introduce me to a couple of the producers. So from then on, I had the ability to get the access to get in. But when you get in, that's only half of the problem. You got to get three producers to support your product before it can be here played. It's called a panel. Now, there are about five panel producers. And for you to convince three out of five who were older men, older English people with different type of culture from the type of music I'm planning to put. And it was always dump my stuff in the boxes before they even get play. I happened to meet a, a guy called Tim Blackmore. He used to produce a, ro a road program. And I explained to him what's happening. He said, no, I will leave your name there. I'll always let you in here. And he began to play my stuff on the road show. In the meantime, <coughs> I was working hospital radios and United Biscuit Network, McVitie's. They are the factory up in Sign Park. McVitie's are the internal radio that was piped into all of their factories. And I made friends with a guy called Adrian Love, whose father was Jeff Love, the musical director for Max Biograve programs. Adrian Love was a very nice man. He introduced me to all the new, young, upcoming DJs who became the big guys in the industry after that. Um, Adrian Love used to present an LBC program. I used to go there and get interviews from my artists. And uh, I was never short of interviews. Uh, Tim Blackmore later get into Capital Radio. But none of this could have happened without the sound system in the first instance. Because in the absence of radio play, our radio station was our sound systems. The, the whole idea was to keep our culture and the momentum of our music playing and to entertain ourselves because there was no entertainment provided for us anywhere. So you had a lot of new merging sound systems. Up until then, you maybe have hundreds of sound systems. Because in London, I can count at least 20. You had them in Birmingham, everywhere. And there was an African man named Mr. Eddie who lived in Paddington. He used to build the amplifiers. And everybody was trying to out, out <laughs> upgrade each other. So the sound system were getting bigger and bigger and better. And uh, they were actually filling up areas in uh, Amersfoort Pali and places like big areas. So there were big sounds. But on a normal day, they'll be playing in small houses. <laughs> so to load up all these boxes in the small houses with amplifiers that was built for open air area was a bit frightening. This bass alone will be vibrating all the houses on the street and the police will come, close it down, throw us out. <laughs> but we continued. And the record companies like Chosen that I was representing was uh, actually using the popularity of records through the sound systems. So we will give 
record samples to the sound systems and they would play so we see the reaction of people to it. Now, it would have been impossible to get records in the British chart the way we were doing it because there was 336 shops that was catering to the chart return, the Gallup polls. And out of that 336, only one was a reggae shop. So even though we were selling 50,000 records, we weren't making any gains trying to enter the charts. Eric Donaldson record, Cherry O Baby, sold upwards of 50,000 and would never show on the Richter scale of a chart return. So I, I had the task of working to find which shops were on the chart return list. The only one that was on the church reggae shop was in Stanford Hill called Rita and Benny R&B Records. And they were owned by English people. So we had it twice as hard getting any records to show in the national charts, even though we had the sales going. So we did not have an easy route, but all along the sound system, they were on the road doing the thing and making our, our presence known. In Trojan Records, <coughs> we had uh, so many different labels. Each producer wanted his own label. So we were sometimes releasing 13 records a week. Of only possible one would have been really good seller. We were losing a lot of records along the way because of contractual obligations. We, we were contracted to take on people labels uh, because each producer wanted his own label. So then it, it became very confusing. But what was happening is that the sound system men was bypassing us and going straight to producers in Jamaica and have the records before we even have them. And it was a big thing for us now going to, well me, going to the sound system to hear the new things coming out from the sound system before we even hype it up to see which ones we're going to select. What's the reaction of how people are dancing and dealing with it? Because us in offices, we can't really relate to see how people are reacting unless we actually been on the scene. So that was the task we had. I, after my period in Trojan, I took the first reggae tour to Thailand with that man over there. And this, the second stop, we, I, we took it for about 11 weeks to Japan, which is now reggae biggest market. And I further was on the scene in promoting reggae in Nigeria. I was so successful of doing that that the government banned the recording industry from importation into the country. So it, after we've made it so big, so popular, it's not just reggae, they ban all records because they said they need money to buy books and medicine and not luxurious items like records. So Virgin Records now set up a label, a subsidiary label called Frontline to meet that market that was created by me. So we really did not have an easy job no matter where we go. But now reggae has metamorphosized into 
all cultures, all music. There's no popular music out there that do not have some fusion at some point with reggae music. And it's, it's a proud moment for me to acknowledge that. I've seen the birth of it in Chukamala dance halls, in Forrester's all, all dance halls. It was all sound systems. It was all sound systems that made the reggae music that type of culture. And I'm happy to say that Trojan went down, it went through bad times, very, very bad times after we really lost it. It went through two very, very bad hands, but it has now ended up in nice, good, safe hands with people who treat it with respect, people who uh, package it properly and realize that it is not just a music, it's a way of life. And happy to say, young people, children are integrating into the reggae culture, which is really is community building. Um, they, there's no racism anymore. Well, there's racism in other areas, but in the music, reggae is accepted in all ear, ear space now. All raiders play it in America, in Japan, even in Russia. Reggae is big now on the continent. I live six months a year in Brazil. Been doing that now for 14 years. Reggae is so big in Brazil, it is called, the state is a state called Marino State. And the city I live in is called Sao Luis. Sao Luis means San Luis. Uh, reggae is so big there that no matter where in, in Brazil you arrive, which airport, if you put down the address Sao Luis, that's oh, this is the city of reggae. All the clubs and the restaurants are Jamaican or Brazileros. Dilma Rousseff, the president, last president, she even came to Jamaica, dressed up in Rasta colors, lift up the immigration restrictions just because of the influence of reggae. So it, the city is called the city of reggae. And all happen. There's not one record shop in the complete city. It's all sound systems. I have count 270 speakers on one sound system. It's big business. The politicians there, they back different sound systems to get followers. The influence that reggae has got and the sound system has got. The all the birth came from that simple little Jamaica dance halls business. The little Joe Creed and Coxon, King Edward the Giant, Count C the Wizard. These are original sound systems that now breaking down barriers in Brazil. And it's all started from simply a man put up four boxes and some speakers up on a tree. And it's gone global. And it's respected in Brazil. The president of Brazil used it for our political campaign. It lifts immigration barriers. It really integrates cultures around the world. And I'm happy that I'm a part of it. And can we go back to um, when you were in London, you talked about it breaking down barriers. Um, when did you see, you, you said that the sound systems, the original sound systems in London were just for Caribbeans and Jamaicans to, uh, to think of home, really. Um, when did you notice that it started having a broader effect, that English people were interested? 
uh, well, uh, uh, for for us evidence, when carnival started, there was so so many sound systems string up on the road. Uh, people was enjoying it, and it it took a different turn where people was promoting on air and open park events. It, it was open park events like Brockwell Park and all that. It was no longer black people gathering. Uh, Hyde Park, it wasn't black people gathering. It was a multicultural, multiracial. So I realized it then. Did, um, did you react to this, that Trojan, in any way? Did you? Yes. Um, we put on <coughs> at Hyde Park rock concert. Sound systems were there. I had Toots and the Matels on there, I had Cynthia Richards, I had Hal Brown on there. It was all reggae and all sound systems. Did this surprise you at all that it had spread beyond the core market? No, it, 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 it wouldn't surprise me because reggae was in every city in England. Birmingham had about 10 different sound systems, Nottingham had a lot. Leeds, Derby, uh, even quite a little Coventry have about five sound systems. So it, it is nothing that could be contained or restricted in any areas. It's become an open concern for everyone now. And at one point, um, this was going back to the late 60s, early 70s, Trojan were what we called it, stringsing up reggae, putting yes. um, orchestrations <coughs> on. Yeah. Uh, what was happening there? We were desperately trying to please our producers in BBC. And when they listen to our music, I was called Jungle Bunny. I was called Nig Nug. I was called uh, Flipside Joe. This is by people in the BBC. Oh, yeah. They made jokes that only they were laughing at the joke, and I really wasn't. And sometimes uh, people don't want you in the place. They said, they don't, say, don't come in. But how they treat you while you're in there. They slam doors and make slight comments and you speak to the mother, they won't answer. So you're not welcome. I'd like to tell you it's changed, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that period was a very, very difficult period. And even when you were clearly making the effort to uh, show that we're, you know, we're, we're reorchestrating this music, people clearly like it. No, what happened? Uh, we had reggae strings. And when we had the first Sing For I album with John Holt, and then the Thousand Volts, we were sweetening up stuff to please BBC producers. Uh, but after what was happening, the, the skinheads wanted the authentic reggae. They were big, big followers of reggae. And the skinheads would not buy the records when they're string. So we were trying to please one audience and losing the other. I, I was just, I must um, explain for those of you under a certain age that uh, there was a time when skinheads were fashion, not fascist. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Th that's what we're talking about now. We're not talking about um, the type of skinheads that you'd see around in London in the near the year ones. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about this is essentially just white kids following a fashion. Yeah. Uh, the skinheads were in the early years when uh, the boots began to happen. The 
skinheads supported reggae. They had black mates, but after it becomes political, um, the persuasion was to separate people. And you had political activities begin to integrate and try to get into the influence the young kids away from our jungle bunny music. And uh, fascism, kind of near Nazi behavior, came about. But in the early years, it wasn't. The earlier skin, it was fine. It's later, it becomes politically influenced and encouraged by the media. It was encouraged in a way that the skinheads were doomed as bad people. So they wouldn't play the reggae. That's a reason not to play the reggae because they said it's uh, activating violent behavior. So you really can't win, right? They're not playing no. it because um, you're black guys and that is white guys supporting it. And they won't play it because those white guys are supporting yeah, yeah. it. They're saying that it's a bad influence because when, when white kids hear it, they become violent. I, I don't understand that, but that's the way it was. Well, um, were you selling a lot of records then across the board? Because, I mean, you were in the charts with uh, Bob and Marcia, Nicky Thomas, that sort of thing. We were selling a lot of records. Some were selling millions. And uh, we were, we, at one time, I had, what, like six records in the charts, one time. Now, you've got to think of the British people culture. They need to protect it, because that's the way they knew it since the beginning of time. If you have a top 100, there are different parts of a record. You have performing rights, you have copyrights, you have writers and publishers. If us in Neesden Lane, eight people sitting in an office, occupying 15 or 20% of the national charts, where there's only eight people going to get salary out of that, as opposed to RCA, Phonogram, Deckers, Philips, Rock, they're going to have to share the, the remainder of the charts, and they were multi-billion concerns. So you've got to take in context to say, when a reggae is taking up the charts, the Rock and the big investors who employ tens of thousands of people, they're missing out on the gaps that we take up. So they really wouldn't want to encourage it. You see my point? Yeah, yeah, completely. It's the music business looking after itself. Right. They, they really wouldn't want to encourage us occupying more than the, the, the portion that we had. Uh, but the music was contagious and people was grabbing on to it. The younger people who went to school with black people who came out of colleges, they were buying it. Most record shops is where the pay packet of most black people was opened. A man get his salary, he don't take it home. He go to the record shops first and buy the first four or five records before he even go home. And that kept us going. Also, I mean, one Ch thing- Children had 13 record shops. In, around the country? No, around London. Oh, right. mm. It's called Music City. Yeah, there's one in Shepherd's Bush, one in- Two was Ridley in Shepherd's Road. Bush. No, Three was in Shepherd's Bush, two in, in the market and one on Golark Road. They were in the market and they, they were all, all over. 
So also, um, what you did as well was you introduced the Titan Up series, which... Uh, yeah, Titan Up series was introduced by um, Rob Bell, I think. Um, I had nothing to do with that, but it is children bestsellers. The Titan Up series, for anybody who doesn't, you know, um, might be younger than me, which is probably all of you, is um, it was albums. They were nine and six, was that right? Or nine and 11? Uh, 14 and 11, something like that. They were under 75 pence for an album which had every reggae hit you could imagine of the time on it. There'd be, what, 12 songs per album? More than that, I think. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was f absolutely fantastic for uh, kids like myself who could buy reggae at that price, you know, for, yeah, for virtually nothing. Um, and it was something that really helped to spread uh, Trojan music, yeah, certainly around the, the catalogue's number was T TBL, Trojan Budget Label. So it was uh, cheap price albums. I would say this, it's kind of no wonder you got in financial difficulty if um, you're giving music away like that. <laughs> no, we got in financial difficulty by, uh, by some very cruel and devious people who played games and won the games, you know? Uh, okay, quickly, I can give an idea. <coughs> the boss of Trojan was a man called Lee Gopthal. He's a Jamaican Indian. He owned BNC, which is Beaton Commercial, and he owned Trojan. He also, Music City, BNC was marketing Charisma Records, which is Genesis, Nazareth, Chili Willie, De Cameron, Linda's Farm, Steel Eye Span, Black Sabbath, Monty Python, all these big names. And Lee Gophel used to sit at 37 Soho Square at the offices there where they're making all the arrangements. Tony Stratton Smith pulled away the catalog after Lee Gophel had promoted the catalog pulled it away and went to phonogram and left BNC with nothing. Because of the success of Trojan, manufacturing, selling, and pressing and doing all these things and created big bills, waiting on BNC who physically sell the records and collect the money. BNC went down because it lost charisma. So BNC was unable to pay Trojan so Chajan was unable to pay MCPS and other creditors. So it wasn't Trojan that went down, it's BNC went down as a result of the separation of Charisma Records from BNC. So that is how it went down. Okay, I'm, well I'm glad it wasn't because I was buying too many cheap records <laughs> from <laughs> But um, as we moved into the 70s, um, it almost seemed to me as if Trojan wasn't keeping up with the way reggae was changing. Trojan was keeping up because the producer that was producing it in Jamaica had contractual obligation to Trojan. So we automatically had the right to put out maybe 90% of all what was happening. Uh, some of them wasn't selling. It wouldn't be not Trojan keeping up. It would have been, the changes would have been made from Jamaica. But we also had people in England 
I was making records here that was selling. We had Simaranza Matumbi, we had Winston Govey, but we're making records in England that were selling here. So you were ahead of the curve then in changing stuff into um, UK reggae, if you like. Yeah, we were do doing that, but we were also, with the strings, we were changing the Jamaica record from Bob and Marcia, but we were changing it to please British producers, British radio producers. Uh, and we were losing something special. Did you move away from the sound systems at this point? We no. No, the sound system has always been there. It, it was a, another part of the industry. It's not just the record company that created reggae. You had the man that lift the box, then you have the man that put on these shows, shows in big halls like uh, the Mecca dances. You had people that put on shows at the state cinemas and all over. It's the different departments. So it wasn't one area that uh, is responsible for the success. You had the simple man who played the sound system, lift the boxes. You have another man who print the posters. Uh, another man who plastered the posters on walls. And it was many, many parts of the same. Which thing. is still the same um, thing that, that yeah. just carried on, didn't it? That just carried on. Just uh, but e even though children had, for a period, fade, the sound system business did not fade. It goes on. I think if you go to England, you maybe find 800 sound systems. So that has not gone away. It's still there. Okay, just before we wrap it up, this part, um, and take questions from the audience, do you want to talk a bit about uh, this film? Last week, I was lucky enough to um, go to the premiere of this film, Rude Boy, which is the, the story of Trojan Records. Um, Chips is, is one of the stars of it, as you can imagine. And... Uh, it's an absolutely tremendous film, telling the story of how the record company came about, what it did, how it did what it did. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about it? Oh, that was, well, before I, I even got involved with record business, I used to be a special effects man with Associated British Pictures. So I knew about how to edit films. The man who edited this movie here is an absolute genius. How uh, it must have been a very difficult thing to integrate acting, people playing parts of Bonnie Lee, playing parts of Danny Livingston, parts of Desmond Decker, parts of Ken Booth. You got actors. In the same time, you have living people who are doing documentary interviews. So to fusion both of them for a storyline. It was a well, well-made movie, and I recommend everybody should see that. It's this a is fantastic one, movie. One of the absolute, I mean, it's, it really surprised me, is um, there's dramatic scenes, recreations from the 50s and 60s of Kingston dances, sound systems, and all sorts, and it does an absolutely brilliant job of uh, creating the atmosphere and, and really letting you know what it was that right. fed into um, creating what we appreciate here today. They even went back to the actual building that you could have this Treasure Island studio. Uh, the downstairs of Treasure Island studio was a, a liquor mart. And upstairs was the studio. They actually went there to film the environment and they went in some deep areas, you know. And you have legendary people 
in the movie, like Derek Morgan was telling you how he came to be. Bonnie Lee, Dandy Livingston was from England. Uh, he started his career in England. And he had a couple of hit records. And he actually tell you the route of the day when Trojan started. And the, 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 in the environment that was created by the actors in integrating the living Don Livingston and living Bonnie Lee, it really takes a lot of good work. And I would recommend every one of you to go and see it. If you're a regular fan, you shouldn't miss it. It's good. Yeah, I'll second that. Now, has anybody got any questions for Chips? You must have. No? There's a young lady down. Oh, right. About what? It's all a part of the same body. Uh, the sound system, the poetry, it's all about our art, our culture. And there are different areas in which amount to the same thing. It's not what, it's not getting there. We take many routes, but the same destination. So the sound system is one way, record company is another, recording studio is another, but they all belong to each other. I hope I answered your question. Okay. Well, my favorite has been everything I own with Ken Boot. Uh, and I... After children, I had started my own company. I had big, big albums. Uh, Carol Thompson, Louisa Marks. Those were my albums, uh, part of them. If you ask me about the children, my favorite Jamaican artist of all time is Toots. Owen Gray, Ken Booth. Those are my favorite Jamaican artists. Huh? Yes, yeah, I run a very successful record label because after children, I acquired the rights to my relatives who own Treasure Wells. Sonia Pottinger, I started a company that had Treasure Wells Records and I started High Note and Sky Note labels and I had a couple of vans on the road and I made a very good success. I had a 24-track recording studio. I retired 15 years ago, gave the studio to my engineer, said, take the equipment and go. I want to get out of this. But I came back to it because of my prime minister in Jamaica uh, granted me a, a national award, uh, the Prime Minister's Medal of Appreciation. So I am now left with the task of building a database 
for the Jamaican birth musicians born in Jamaica, living in England over the past 50 years. I am now authorized by the Jamaica government to con collect data to create a database uh, for all that had happened here because unfortunately Jamaica did not keep these records. So uh, this will en enable us to have uh, national awards, uh, national awards and honors will start issuing us from next year, August, to some of the people who died, their relatives who will died and forgot, never get any recognition. I am now responsible to putting all that together so people can get recognition here. Because when you think of Desmond Decker, Dave Barker, Pioneers, uh, even not necessarily reggae, when you think of Jamaicans like Boney M, Carl Douglas Kung Fu fighting, never get any recognition from Jamaica government. But it's in hand now, and we're changing that as from next August. So I am the mandated man to collect that data to make this possible. No, reggae is sound system, and so is reggae. <laughs> I mean, uh, they complement each other, and they need each other. Re reggae needs sound system, and sound system needs reggae. Well, that was the only media we had, and it, it kept our culture, maintained our culture. And can you imagine if we had come here and begin to sing Sing uh, Beatles, which I love you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we couldn't be doing that, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I'm a Beatles fan, but uh, the, the people older than me and my area, we wanted our own thing to identify our own stuff with our, our way of life back home. 90% of all Jamaicans who migrated to England did not come to live here. We come to get some money to go home. But getting the money was more difficult than you imagine to get a mortgage, to live somewhere, you're gonna take you 25 years to pay the mortgage. So we begin to have children here. And when we have children, we can't live anymore. So we have to stay here. So the sound system is what kept us uh, going. Long before record companies come and go, the sound system come and stay. And it's growing, it's getting bigger. So good afternoon. Good there's afternoon. been yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, work done documenting uh, women's contribution to different uh, arts, including music. What is your perspective on that in relation to your documenting the wonderful genealogy of reggae? Uh, are you saying? Uh, female reggae singers? Uh, are you referring to the singers or, or other part of the arts? The whole story. Of well, Marcia Griffiths uh, has made her mark on the British charts. Then you got Susan Kodagan, the first female to make number one reggae. You have 
Carol Thompson, which products belong to me, Louisa Marx, we had Janet Kay. We had a lot of females who played a fundamental part in our development of our music. Played big, big parts. I think even Karen Wheeler, they played very, very monumental parts in our music fraternity. So the women contribution is equally as important and uh, they have made a mark and they should be respected for what they've done. I should be appreciated, I should say. Now they are appreciated. I beg your pardon? In Sao Louise, S A O L U I Z. Yes. End up doing what? No, 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 no. It in Brazil. Brazil is uh, uh, on us from Friday to Monday. Nobody wear long pants. It's all cut off and party, party scene and drink and dance. And the no, 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 <laughs> no. It's not like that. Um, no. Sound system people going for local politics and politicians. No, the government give one day, no, no, once a year, they give money to sound system people to promote and to keep people dancing. So it's the government who is putting in the money to keep people dancing because. No, 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 no. And the sound system thing is growing. I, I beg you, go on the internet and put Sao Luis MA Brazil. You will see sound system that your mind will be blown. You're seeing 200 and odd boxes onto one sound system, and sometimes they go on the beaches and block you in with four sound system, and you're inside. <laughs> when they turn those up, <laughs> your heart is got pumping up and down. Uh, but the sound system thing is a big culture. You even have sound system in Japan. You have Japan sound system DJs speak deeper patois in Jamaica than I do. <laughs> yeah, they have their own shows, their own performance in Jamaica. Japanese dancing and reggae and going on how stops to dance. I don't know if you have, you have ever seen it on YouTube. Japanese going up on house stops and climbing trees to dance to open their reggae sound systems. Okay, we got time for one more question. Thank you. Um, about uh, the presence and the importance of women. I mean, Janet Kaye said, uh, again, when I last saw her, about Lovers Rock, that obviously it was an exciting time, and um, but they weren't well paid, and you know, there's whole issues in terms of how uh, record companies basically rip people off. I'm just curious, how many women producers were you aware of or managed to thrive at that time? Because it, it was seen as quite very male dominated in terms of studio and production. I'm just curious, it's like hidden figures. All of a sudden now we're aware of women who had a pivotal role um, in science, pivotal role in terms of hip hop and being like airbrushed out of um, their role. What's the situation in terms of reggae? Uh, uh, 
a lot of producers get a lot of blame for things that is not true. I, I'm sorry we only have a minute or two. I would love to clear it up. In the early years in Jamaica, you pay a, a position five pounds. Five pounds was a lot of money. You could spend 200 pounds on deposit on a house. Singers was getting 20 pounds a song. If you sing one song, you get 20 pounds. You sing two sides, you get 40 pounds. A house deposit was 200 pounds. There was no contracts in play. The first time contracts came in play is when uh, Derroy Wilson done uh, some music at Studio One and paid 60 pounds. Only then, Leslie Kong bring the reggae market price up. It was all paid off, just like it was in America. There was no contracts. The only contracts that came about is when Desmond Decker made the charts, then reggae became an industry. But before, it was all based around sound systems. Each sound system man paid 20 pounds to sing a song for him. And it wasn't a business until it Desmond Decker really made an impression to yeah. globalize the industry. Yeah, no, she, that, that's been declared, I mean, because there's a chain of, of, of people who are involved and, um, but it's more about the role of women as producers. Was that, were, are there any female producers you're aware of who are working around the time you were more active? Ooh. That you think, because you're saying you're giving up the awards, are there any women producers, or was it easy or difficult for a woman to be a producer on the scene? And if so, no, why? my cousin Sonia Pottinger is the first female producer in the Western Hemisphere. She has produced some of the best works. She has produced Brent Dowan the Melodians. She has produced Marcia Griffiths, Babandi, Culture. And she is well respected, decorated by her government. She got a, a, a national awards. So she's an example of what women parts were, and they were respected if they play respectful parts. Okay, um, we've got to wrap it up there, so let's hear it for Chips Richards. <laughs> okay, um, there's gonna be a little break now. Um, I should imagine the bar's open, and uh, then we're um, coming back with uh, Jazzy B. Thank you for Five having minutes. me.